Hey there, thanks for tuning in to St. John's Asheville Sermon Podcast. We're a church in Sydney's inner west, following Jesus and helping people find grace, learn hope, and be light. If you'd like to visit us or find out more, go to cciw.church. I'm Elliot, and I'll be reading from God's Word tonight, starting with Psalm 80. Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock, you who are enthroned upon the cherubim, Shine forth before Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh. Stir up your might and come to save us. Restore us, O God. Let your face shine that we may be saved. O Lord God of hosts, how long will you be angry with your people's prayers? You have fed them with the bread of tears and given them tears to drink in full measure. You make us the scorn of our neighbours. Our enemies laugh among themselves. Restore us, O God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. You brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade, the mighty cedars with its branches. It sent out its branches to the sea and its shoots to the river. Why then have you broken down its walls? so that all who pass along the way pluck its fruit. The boar from the forest ravages it, and all that move in the field feed on it. Turn again, O God of hosts. Look down from heaven and see. Have regard for this vine, the stock that your right hand planted. They have burned it with fire. They have cut it down. May they perish at the rebuke of your countenance but let your hand be upon the one at your right hand, the one whom you made strong for yourself. Then we will never turn back from you. Give us life and we will call on your name. Restore us, O Lord God of hosts. Let your face face shine that we may be saved. And our second reading is from Matthew chapter 20, beginning at verse 1. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner, who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for the usual daily wage, he sent them into his vineyard. When he went out about nine o'clock, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace, and he said to them, You also go into the vineyard, and I will pay you whatever is right. So they went. When he went out again about noon and about three o'clock, he did the same. And about five o'clock he went out and found others standing around. And he said to them, Why are you standing here idle all day? They said to him, Because no one has hired us. He said to them, You also go into the vineyard. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his manager, Call the laborers and give them their pay, beginning with the last and then going to the first. When those hired about five o'clock came, each of them received the usual daily wage. Now when the first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received the usual daily wage. And when they received it, when they received it, they grumbled against the landowner, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for the usual daily wage? Take what belongs to you and go. 
I choose to give to this last, the same as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or are you envious because I am generous? So the last will be first, and the first will be last. Australia, that's the country where we live, just in case you weren't sure. Here, Australia. Uh, Sometimes known as the land of the fair go. Uh, You might have heard this talked about endlessly by politicians. They love to talk about the fair go and giving people a fair go. Though when you dig into it, it often means different things for different sides of politics, exactly what a fair go looks like. Uh, Fairness, I think, is a closely held Australian value. We think that fairness really, really matters. Uh, It's both both positive and negative, of course. It's, It's positive in the sense that we want everyone to have equal opportunities to succeed and to thrive. It's negative in the sense that it means we really, 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 really dislike it when someone seems to be getting more than they deserve or that their success is greater than the effort they've put in. So, for example, as a nation overall, we take great pride in having a well-established social safety net, universal health care, access to education, unemployment benefits, income support for the disadvantaged, all good things that give people a fair go. On the other hand, we really don't quite so much like the perks that are available to politicians or tax breaks for big companies or the enormous salaries that CEOs earn. To many of us, they don't really seem that fair at all. Fairness is a deeply held value, and there's lots to love about that. But as soon as you talk about fairness, you see, you have to start talking about deserving. Does that person deserve what they've had? And as soon as you talk about deserving, you have to start making comparisons. Do they deserve it more? Do they deserve it less compared to one another? Uh, It's fair to give uh, income support to the unemployed, most of us think, and the reason straightforwardly is that most of us Uh, would agree that their employment status will be a factor of all kinds of things apart from just how good or bad they are at their work. On the other hand, many of us would want to ask a question about whether a high six-figure salary for a CEO is actually fair. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. But, you know, do they work the same uh, hours and as hard as nurses or truck drivers do? At the other end of the salary scale, of course, there's that favourite Australian punching bag, the doll bludger. Most of you actually in this room have been students recently. You've probably been a dole bludger fairly recently. We have this concept of a dole bludger, right? And the reason is that it's someone who's benefited from the fair go principle. We think that's a good thing, but they've squandered the opportunities they've been given. Do they really deserve to keep getting those opportunities? Fairness is a good thing, you see, but it raises questions, doesn't it, of deserving. And the question of deserving invites comparisons with other people. That's all a bit out there, right, talking about social policy and all those kinds of things, but that same deeply held principle of fairness also plays out in our own hearts and minds and lives. Have you ever said when something doesn't go your way, it's not fair? Perhaps you've been uh, passed over for a promotion or a pay rise or even for a job at all. You say, I've worked so hard, I've done everything that's been asked of me, I've been so loyal, it's not fair that I didn't get that. Or maybe you have a family member or a friend for whom every single thing all the time just seems to work out perfectly with no effort needed from them. No dramas, no difficulties, everything just comes up roses for them. And you think to yourself, I'm busting my gut here, trying to do everything I can to make ends meet, and they just waltz through life. It's not fair. This whole fairness-deserving comparison thing works in relationships too, of course. Probably everyone here has experienced a relationship that that really, to be honest, goes south because the other party doesn't seem to be putting in the effort. 
I've been so thoughtful about making time for him, but he never makes time for me. It's not fair. Of course, this can easily become the whole lens through which you view a relationship as well, isn't it? Well, you know, they don't really go out of their way for me, so I guess I won't go out of my way for them. They don't deserve it. If you really think about it, and if you're really honest with yourself, this same fairness, deserving, comparison thing can can also be applied to our relationship to God. Have you ever tried to do a deal with God? To say, I'm going to, I'm really, I'm going to do this, I'm going to try really hard, I'm going to do this thing this year, and here's what I want you to give to me in return for it. I've done all this kind of stuff at church, I've worn myself out looking after other people, and then actually when things don't go your way, you say to God, I've done all of this, why would you let me get sick? Why wouldn't you give me that one thing that I asked for? It's not fair. Fairness can easily become, you see, more than a deeply held value for us. It can become the paradigm that defines our attitudes to ourselves and to other people, and even, indeed, to God. And when fairness becomes our paradigm for viewing the world, when it focuses our attention on questions of deserving and comparing, it leads inevitably to resentment and envy and bitterness. In this next section of Matthew's Gospel that Eliot's just read for us, uh, Jesus refers to this attitude. He calls it the evil eye. Don't you think that's a great phrase? The evil eye, he says. Uh, It's in verse 15, uh, which uh, in the, the versions in front of us says, Are you envious because I am generous? The landowner's question to the workers. Uh, The original Greek text reads, Is your eye evil because I'm generous? The landowner in this story that Jesus tells can see the resentment that doing good to the last workers has dredged up in in the first workers here. He can see the resentment in their eyes. They're resentful and envious and bitter because their default paradigm, their way of seeing what's happening in the world, is one of fairness and comparing and deserving. It's the lens through which they see themselves and the other workers here too. Jesus says they have an evil eye. But the landowner, you see, operates from a very different paradigm. And, to be honest, to just pick a word, the paradigm that he operates on is grace. He sees things differently. He knows a more beautiful way to live. And through this story, Jesus is inviting his hearers and his readers, the disciples who he's first spoken to, all who've read it throughout the ages, you and me as we hear it tonight. He's inviting us to shift our default paradigm away from fairness instead to grace. He's asking us to shift the way we see the world from the way the rest of the world sees the world to a kingdom mindset. And he grounds that invitation in who our Heavenly Father is. He's the one who, in the voice of the landowner, says, I am generous. That's what this is all about. Here's how we're going to proceed as we unpack it a little bit more tonight. You'll see it on the next slide if um, someone would click across for me. Thank you. Two points. The basis of the paradigm and secondly, shifting paradigms. What's the basis of this paradigm of grace? Uh, We're going to unpack that by just getting straight into the parable. Verse 1, for the kingdom of heaven is like. Now, whenever Jesus introduces a story in that way, the kingdom of heaven is like, you know that he's about to contrast the kingdom with the way the world usually works in our experience. The kingdom, remember, is about God's rule or reign over the world, specifically the promise that he's made that he will come and rule the world in such a way that everything will be set right again. The kingdom means life in a world uh, where God is at the centre in such a way that all the ruinous effects of sin and evil and death in the world uh, start to fade away. And the invitation into eternal life, into life in the kingdom of heaven, is an invitation to begin living that life here and now as we wait for the Lord's return to renew all things fully and forever. 
And so we know already just from the very beginning, the introduction here, that this story is going to tell us something about how to live that kind of life with God at the centre, so generating fresh possibilities for a better and richer way of living. The story that Jesus tells to illustrate that is about some of the most kind of fundamental human realities, isn't it? Work, employment, labour, provision, money. And as is often the case in Jesus' parables, there's an authority figure here who represents God, if you like, the landowner. He owns a vineyard and he needs people to work it, so he goes and hires some. Uh, in the first century of Palestine and lots of other places uh, throughout uh, the, the world still today, uh, people who are looking for work on a given day will congregate at a central marketplace in the city and those who need labourers will come and, and pick some of them and say, come with me and you can work for me for the day. Uh, these kinds of labourers are um, basically the casual employees of the day, uh, except actually even worse off. They're just hanging around all day, every day, waiting and hoping that someone will give them a job to do. And so uh, this uh, landowner comes along and picks some of them up to take to his vineyard. Uh, he agrees to the usual daily wage. Uh, and so far in this story that Jesus tells, there's nothing out of the ordinary whatsoever. That's how it works. You need some workers. You go and pick them up from the marketplace. You agree to the wage, which is the wage they get from anyone, just the wage for the day. But as the story goes on, it starts to get a little unusual. Uh, the landowner, you see, goes back to hire more workers. Not once, but four more times. About nine o'clock, about noon, about three o'clock, again at about five o'clock, just an hour before the end of the workday. And on each visit to the marketplace, he hires additional workers. Why is he doing that? What's, what's the deal here? That would have struck the original hearers of this in the, in the first century as very, very odd. Uh, they might ask the question of whether or not the, the landowner had massively underestimated how much labour he needs, in which case he'd just be pretty bad at his job, to be honest. He knows what the job is. He knows how many workers he needs. But there's nothing else in the parable that, that tells us that, that he's kind of incompetent. They might also ask the question if, uh, of whether he just couldn't get enough workers at the start of the day. He knew he needed more, but he couldn't get enough at the start. But that seems pretty unlikely too, given the fact that he keeps going back and seeing people, as the story tells us, standing idle. There's a bunch of people just standing around, so it couldn't be that he didn't have enough people to pick up at the start of the day. What's going on here? Why does he keep going back again and again to the marketplace? His motivation becomes clear at the end of the day when it's time to give out the paychecks. Pick it up with me from verse 8. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his manager, call the labourers and give them their pay, beginning with the last and then going to the first. When those hired about five o'clock came, each of them received the usual daily wage. So here's the picture, right? Uh, these guys have been hired an hour before the end of the day. They've done an hour's work, probably actually even less, and they get paid for a full 10-hour workday. Score. For those of you who've worked in casual employment, I mean, like, it's even better than double time and a half. It's a lot of money, right? And now we begin to see the landowner's reason for going again and again and again and again to the marketplace. You see, he knows just how precarious life is for those workers living day to day in the hopes that someone will give them a day's work and a day's pay. He knows that actually what they need to survive isn't just an hour's worth of work, but a day's wage. Uh, notice what he says to the last workers hired an hour before the end of the workday in verse 6. The landowner found others standing around and he said to them, why are you standing here idle all day? Maybe he's asking them whether or not they're doll bludgers. Actually, you guys just lazy, just hanging around? Like, surely you've found some work, right? They respond to him, because no one's hired us. 
obvious, right? I mean, obviously no one's hired them. That's why they're still standing around. But the point is that they're not lazy. They're not trying to avoid work. They're not being irresponsibly picky about the kind of work they can get. They simply haven't had the opportunity. And so the landowner straight away says, come and work in my vineyard too, just for the last hour of the day. It seems that the landowner's motivation all along has been the well-being of his workers. He's not operating on the principle of what do I need, what profit can I extract from these workers I employ. He's working on the principle of what do they need, what's good for them. They want to provide for, their, for themselves and for their families, and for that they need to work, and they need the money that comes with work, and so the landowner goes out and gives it to them. So the latecomers in the day are, are laughing, right? A full day's pay for an hour's work. And now the first guys who are hired are thinking, oh, this is looking pretty good for us now, isn't it? We might get a lot more than we bargained for here. But it turns out they get exactly the same, and they're not at all pleased about it, are they? Let me read from verse 10. Now, when the first came, those who were hired first in the day, they thought they'd receive more. But each of them also received the usual daily wage. And when they received it, they grumbled against the landowners, saying, the last worked only an hour, and you have made them equal to us, who have borne the burden of the day in the scorching heat. In other words, sum it up, in other words, it's not fair. We did more work, we should get more reward. Compared to them, we deserve heaps more. You see, the default paradigm they're operating here with is that fairness paradigm, isn't it? Fairness, deserving, comparing. A strict accounting of what is deserved. And that's the lens through which they see themselves and their fellow workers, and it leads them immediately into envy and resentment and bitterness. The landowner responds by suggesting to them, actually, that they're using the wrong paradigm, that they're looking at this the whole wrong way. Verse 13, but the landowner replied to one of them, friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Didn't you agree with me for the usual daily wage? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give this last the same as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or is your eye evil because I'm generous? It's a really fascinating reply in lots of ways. I want to just point out a few different things about it. Uh, firstly, notice that the landowner isn't actually pitting generosity against fairness here. He says, no, 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 I have treated you fairly. I have treated you fairly. I've given you exactly what you would have expected going into the day and exactly what we agreed on. Uh, Jesus isn't saying uh, here, he's not suggesting that fairness doesn't matter, right? That's not, that's not the point at all. Of course, fairness matters. But the landowner is already suggesting, no, 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 this is not about fairness, actually. You've been treated fairly. There's something more than fairness going on here. Secondly, notice that the landowner challenges the workers' perception of what's happening. What they see as unfair treatment, he sees as generosity. They're looking at the same data set here. They're looking at exactly the same action and activity, but one sees unfairness and one sees generosity. He's freely chosen to give more than is demanded by strict fairness, as is his right. And he suggests that the burning resentment shining in the eyes of these workers is the result of replying the wrong paradigm to the issue. Uh, thirdly, and actually most importantly, uh, notice where it is that the resentment is actually focused. Uh, when the first hired but last paid received their wage, they grumble. You can imagine what they're saying. Can you believe that riffraff who came in at 5pm and barely worked and yet got a full day's pay? What a bunch of losers. No, that's not what they say at all. They complain against the landowner. They complain against the landowner. 
He gets this. He understands exactly where their resentment lies, and, and you can see it in his conversation with them. Uh, he doesn't say, uh, is your evil eye because we have different approaches to the redistribution of wealth? Uh, he doesn't say, is your evil eye because we disagree about actually the best way to, to think about this? No, no, no. He says, is your eye evil because I am generous? The root of their resentment, you see, is the character of the landowner. His generosity is offensive to them. And it's offensive to them precisely because it means they can't count on the predictability of strict fairness. You can't control a landowner who's just going to basically give money away to people like this. Who knows what he's going to do next? And because they can't control him, they can't manipulate him either. There's no way to get more out of this deal because he's operating on a completely different paradigm and they don't like it. Now, as we've already mentioned, Jesus is telling us about the kingdom of heaven here. And as we know, the kingdom means the rule and the reign of God. This parable that he tells us is meant to teach us, therefore, about God and about the life that he gives to those who trust in his son. Here's what this parable on one level tells us about God. It's precisely this, that God will do whatever the heck he decides to do. God will do what he will do. He's not tied down by our own human understandings of goodness or fairness. He doesn't operate according to our logic or values. He's free to do whatever he wants and to be whoever he chooses to be. He is completely beyond our control. That's a terrifying thing on one level. That's a really scary thing on one level. God can do whatever he wants. You have no control over it, no say in it whatsoever. He's utterly beyond our control. And yet, of course, we also know who he is because he's told us and he's shown us. We know his character. He says it here, I am generous. You see, God doesn't relate to us according to what we deserve. He relates to us with generous, gracious, overflowing, compassionate love, always deeply concerned for our well-being. That's the generosity of God. That's grace. That's the paradigm of grace, and it's the default for God. This is how he always acts toward people. So therefore, what Jesus is trying to do through this story is to invite us to undergo a paradigm shift. And it's a shift based, you see, on knowing who God really is and what he's like. He tells this, this story, note, to the disciples, insiders, people who have thrown their lot in with Jesus. They're on the inside. This is not a story for people on the outside, particularly, a story saying, hey, you should, you should come and join me here. This is a story for people who are already in. And so it's important that, you know, for all of us here in the room, especially for those of us who've been following Jesus for a long time, we realize that this is a challenge not just for new Christians, but for all of us. A challenge we need to keep responding to. What is the default paradigm you're operating on? Now, you might be someone who finds yourself asking about fairness often. If you're someone who perhaps expects greater rewards for your holiness than everyone around you, or if you're constantly frustrated by other people getting a better deal than you. Maybe actually what's going on here is that your default paradigm is faulty. And you see the kicker here in this parable is that if your default paradigm is faulty, maybe it's because your view of God is faulty. Are you someone who expects God to treat you well because you try so hard to live a good and holy life? On the other hand, are you afraid that God will treat you badly if you don't live well enough? Or are you convinced that your disappointments and frustrations are God's little punishments for failing to be what he wants you to be? This parable on Jesus' lips here tells us that that's not what God is like. 
That's not who God is. God is never unfair, that's for sure. But he's not only fair either. He goes way beyond fairness. You see, his default paradigm is grace. He treats us well, no matter the quality of our work. And the thing is that if you understand that God is like that, that that's who God is, that that's how he relates to you and to the world, then you're going to have to shift to a new paradigm, to a new way of seeing things, to a new way of living. The beautiful way of the kingdom that Jesus is unpacking for us in these chapters is going to mean a gracious way of life. What might that actually look like? That's where we're going next in point two, shifting paradigms. What would actually change if grace was the default paradigm? At the heart of it, of course, would be a change in how we see other people, since we all come under the same generosity of God. We'd look at people no longer with the evil eye of resentment and bitterness and comparison, but instead with eyes of grace. A few thoughts for you about what that would mean for our world, for us as God's people, and for you and I each in our own walk with God. This point's shorter than point one, I promise. Don't worry, we're getting there. Firstly, what would adopting the grace paradigm mean for the world? There's a bit of a hint in the setting of Jesus' parable, actually, the, the social arrangements here between employers and employees. Uh, now, before I say what I'm going to say, um, let me just make sure it's clear that, that Jesus isn't teaching us about industrial relations here. That's not the point of this parable. His point is to understand who God is and what that then means for how we live under his rule. Uh, but the parable he tells is quite suggestive for what it might mean for, for the world, actually, if we operated on this principle instead. You see, for the landowner in the parable, the grace paradigm means being concerned before everything else for the well-being of his workers. Not only, you see, for what he can get out of them, the profit he can extract. In fact, he actually goes and seeks out unemployed workers in order to give them a job. For our world, then, this grace paradigm might mean uh, taking a genuine interest, actually, in taking seriously issues of unemployment and underemployment and actually having a living wage for people. It might mean uh, that, uh, that landowners, employers, uh, even shareholders whose hearts are captured by this paradigm uh, won't wait for the market or for the state to sort it out. They will make sure that at the heart of their business is looking after workers' well-being, that it's seriously addressed, even at the cost of slightly lower profits. Can you imagine the difference that that would make in our world if that was how more of our businesses operated? That's the world. What about us here as God's people sitting here in church tonight? God doesn't want me to talk about that. I've lost my spot. It's fine, we're back. Uh, what will it mean for us here in the church and the people of God? I think one sure sign that the grace paradigm is being adopted would mean that among us here there will be less and less grumbling. You notice how grumbling is the thing that the workers do? In particular, I think there will be less and less grumbling about who loves and serves our community most and best. I'm going to stop there for a moment and say, I don't think this is a particular, I'm not going there's a real thing here in our congregation that we need to deal with. It's just something that I think you would see more and more if you applied this principle. But I think it would be a beautiful thing. You see, there are times when you, when you think to yourself, oh, man, I do so much stuff at church all the time and I don't really get the recognition that I want for it. There are all these other people sitting around me in the pews and they're not doing anything useful. It's not fair. That's the fairness paradigm at work, isn't it? We should be thankful to God, of course, uh, to, uh, and to one another for our mutual service. But you see, even then, whatever work it is you've been given to do is from the hand of God anyway. Even the workers who turn up first in the day in this parable, they're not in the field because they were good enough to be in the field. They were there because they happened to be in the market at the right time in the right place for the, the landowner to give them a job. It's all from God, and it's all grace from God, you see. 
good work that he's prepared in advance for you to walk in. Serving God and serving one another isn't a means to getting a greater reward from each other or from God. It's a gift so that we might grow in the things of the Lord. Uh, Both in Psalm 80 uh, that we read before and in other parts of the Old Testament, in the New Testament as well, uh, God's people are talked about as his vineyard or his field where, where he does his work. And this is what God does when he invites you into service in his community. He puts you and I to work in his vineyard here together amongst us to build one another up so that we all grow together toward maturity in the Lord. And so grace as your default paradigm is going to mean that every opportunity to serve is a reason for joyful thanksgiving for the one who's given you the work to do. And if there are others around you who you see who aren't serving, or maybe just who aren't serving in the same ways as you, sometimes really that's what it's about. If there are others around you who aren't serving, then actually your response to that should be to pray that God might give them the grace of ways to serve and to encourage them in it. A second thing for us as a church family, if the grace paradigm became our default, it would also mean that we are always full of joy and grace to one another whenever we find ourselves in different places on the journey of faith. What do I mean by that? God calls people into his kingdom, of course, from all kinds of situations and experiences, and growing in faith is going to mean different things for each of us. If the grace paradigm is your default, then then you won't actually have moments where you see someone and you go, oh, well, thank goodness they finally got that together. They should have got there years ago. I don't even know really how serious they are about this Christian thing. They haven't got that sorted out, whatever it is. No, if the grace paradigm is out of fault, we'll rejoice genuinely from the heart whenever we see our sisters and brothers grow in their trust and dependence on the Lord. No matter how stop-start the process looks, no matter if they're at the same point on the journey as we are, Let me put it a slightly different way for you and and speak directly, actually. If you're someone who's new to following Jesus among us tonight, or if you're someone perhaps who just has a lot of doubts about what it means to follow Jesus, hear me when I say this to you. We don't expect you to have it all together. We really don't. Jesus doesn't expect you to have it all together either. We operate on the principle of grace. Some of us have been here really like pretty much since the dawn of time here in this church doing the following Jesus thing. Some of you have just kind of joined late in the day, to use the metaphor of the parable. It doesn't matter. The Lord has called you into his kingdom. He's given you work to do in his vineyard, and we're so glad that you're here. You have lots to learn, and it won't be easy. But we all got here the same way, didn't we? The landowner invited us into his vineyard. God called us by his grace. We've been saved by grace, and so we're going to live by grace as well. And that's going to mean that we don't expect each other to have it all together. And because we don't have that expectation, we can rejoice with one another when we see little baby steps in growth in trust and dependence on the Lord. So there's something for the world. There's something for us here as a church community together. Finally, what's it going to mean to shift from a fairness paradigm to a grace paradigm in your life and my life? I think actually primarily it's going to mean something for our prayers. If you in your heart of hearts suspect that God actually operates according to strict principles of fairness then I reckon one of two things will happen to your prayers. On the one hand, your prayers might be really, really small, tiny, tiny prayers, not asking for too much, not really praying that much at all because, you know, you don't want to to mess it up. You don't want to push the relationship too far. You don't want to get it wrong. Tiny prayers. On the other hand, your prayers might be angry or bitter or frustrated. Because actually you believe you deserve more that God has given you and he's not giving it to you. It's not fair. 
Both of these you see are signs that you've forgotten what God is really like and who God really is. He says, I'm generous. He doesn't treat you as you deserve. He's good and he cares for your well-being and he gives extravagantly out of love. A grace paradigm is going to mean, yes, that your prayers are humble because all of it is a gift of God through grace. You will be joyful in recognition and thankfulness for all the good things that come from God. And yet at the same time, you'll be able to ask God more and more uh, for more and more things from his generous hand. Because you know that he's good, that he's generous, that he loves to give good gifts. And you'll ask, not least, actually, that you yourself will be more and more able to reflect his own generous heart in your life toward others. Not tiny prayers, not bitter prayers, bold, thankful prayers. So much for the difference that a grace paradigm will make in the world, in our own church family, in your life. Jesus, we see in this parable, invites us to make exactly that shift. And so the last question we need to ask is, is how, how is it that you actually do that? How can you shift your default paradigm from fairness to grace? The answer to that, again, of course, is grace as well. Just like the workers, when they were hired in the story that Jesus tells, they've only got work because of the landowner's generosity. So it's only by the grace of God that this paradigm shift is possible for us as well. And as always, he makes it possible through Jesus. Uh, as, I, as I tell you kind of how I think this works, I want to draw your attention as we draw to a close to one more just remarkable feature uh, of this uh, little story that Jesus tells. Uh, notice in the parable how it is that the landowner ends up at the marketplace again and again and again and again. It's not kind of like I was out going for a walk and I just happened to be near the marketplace and I thought I'd stick my head in. It's not that he was dragged there by some kind of need that meant, oh, I don't want to go to the marketplace, but I guess I've got to go. No, no, it was deliberate. Absolutely deliberate. Have a read with me. Verse 1, the landowner went out. Verse 3, the landowner went out. Verse 4, the landowner went out. Verse 6, the landowner went out. He deliberately goes out to the marketplace to find unemployed labourers and to show his generosity to them. In the culture of the day, that, that's a massively unexpected thing to do. The landowner, like, he's got people to do that for him. He's got an HR department. He's got, actually, we meet one in verse 8, a manager of the vineyard. But this landowner doesn't send his manager out, you see. He goes himself. He went out to find workers for his vineyard. You see, Jesus isn't only teaching us about his heavenly father here. He's speaking about himself. He's speaking about his own mission and ministry. Jesus is the one who went out into the world to seek and to save the lost. This is exactly what Jesus has done for you and for me. Or if you want to flip it from our perspective, he's the one who came to us in order to bring us into his father's estate. He came to us in person to be here with us and he saw us lost and idle as we were and called us into a life of joyful service in his kingdom. He left the safety of his father's estate and walked the streets of this broken world we live in and in grace he got we, what we deserve so that we might get what he deserves. He paid the wages of sin at the cross, death, so that we might receive the generous gift of eternal life in him. And so when you see it in that context, right, you start to see how absurd it is to haggle over wages in the kingdom. Everyone gets the same wage, and what is it? Everything. That's the wage that you get for being one of God's workers. Because of Jesus' finished work of the cross, you and I have become heirs with him of 
everything that the Father has given to him. We haven't even had to lift a finger. It's not fair. It's far better than fair. It's grace. And so in response, we give ourselves to serving him freely and joyfully with delight in the grace that each one of us has received from him. Let's pray that God would help us to continue to live in that grace. Father of grace, your love for us is uh, beyond words, really. The generosity that you show to us, like this landowner in Jesus' story, in giving from your abundance to us when we don't deserve any of it. You are a generous God. You're a, a giver of good gifts. You are grace to us. And so we thank you that, you, that the Lord Jesus Christ is, that he went out from heaven at your side. He went out and came here to where we are so that he might find us and give us a hope and a meaning and a purpose and work to do in his service. It's so easy, Father, for us to slip into uh, imagining that the world around us just works on principles of fairness. It's so easy to imagine that that's the sum total of, of who you are, our Father. But that's not who you are, and so that's not who we want to be either. Father, grip our hearts with the glory of what you've done for us in Jesus in giving him what we deserve so that we might have what he deserves, so that we might have everything in him. Grip our hearts with this and so change us that we might see the whole world, every part of it, with eyes of grace. And so give ourselves to you, give ourselves to the Lord's service in all that we do, so that the earth might see how good and generous you are. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.